morning. All right, we got a lot of work to do. We got to dive right into it. I've got to convince you in under 20 minutes what theologians have tried to do in 2,000 years. So my work's cut out for me. So I'm starting in a place of failure this morning, and and we'll move from there. But, but in all seriousness, from the video, if I want you to take one thing away from it, hearts. This is where it starts. It starts with the heart. Is your heart soft? Is your heart hard? And I'm going to go ahead and give you the next step from this sermon before we ever get to the end. The next step as you walk away from here today is check your heart. Where's your heart at? Is it hard? Is it soft? Don't, now, before you answer the question... Now we dive into the sermon, okay? So, today I want to lay a little bit of groundwork concerning the law of Moses and the law in the Christian life. When we get into this section of Galatians, some teachers and denominations have pitted law against grace, making it an either-or argument as if we either live by law or we live by grace, but the, but the two actually hold each other in tension, uh, when one side becomes unconnected from the other or when one side gets elevated above the other is when we run into problems. Some believe that the law is void, that it's canceled, that it's of no benefit in the believer's life, that grace rules the day and that there really isn't any moral black and white, but God love, that his love is more like 50 shades of gray. Others live under a legalist mentality that cripples their ability to even approach God, because they have to have it together before they even get there. They always feel condemned and unworthy, unable to live up to God's expectations. It's like I have to get well before I go and see the doctor. But I hope to resolve this argument by showing that the two actually work together in a healthy tension, and they're not opposed to one another, but because of Jesus' work on the cross, law and grace complement each other, and they give us the tools necessary to be Christ's disciples. So church, let me ask you this question posed by Paul. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit to be holy because you believed the message you heard about Christ. Now, Galatians 3, 6 through 7 says, In the same way, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous. Now, we're going to define righteous in a minute. But because of his faith, it wasn't, he was counted as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. Of course, we know faith without works is dead because we read James 2, 19 through 23. This puts this in context. And James says, you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. So the, the, the demons, remember, lived under the rule of one God. They know the truth. He's God. He is one. Settled. But the demons work counter to God. Even though they have the right belief, their works are contrary to God. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions 
work together. His actions made his faith complete. You've heard, put your money where your mouth is. And so it happened just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Now, let's back up and look in Genesis 15, 5 through 6. It says, then the Lord took Abram, he has not been called Abraham yet, took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you'll have. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. So number one, righteousness, the state of being right or correct, was imputed. It was credited to Abram by God based on Abram's trust in what God had promised. And the evidence of truly trusting is demonstrated by actions in accordance with what we say we believe. So, let me give you a, just a practical example. So if I took one of you and I said, okay, we're going to Rick Husband Airport. I'm going to put you on a plane. I'm flying you to California. I have some directors there. You're going to be famous. You're going to be rich because the story needs to be told. It's all on me. Let's go. And I take you. We get to the airport. We get to the gate. Gate 15, LAX. We're on our way. And you say, yes. We're at the gate, and that plane will get me to Hollywood. That, that is the plane that's going to get me where we need to go. So they call, final boarding call, and I start to walk onto the plane. And I look around, and you're not following me. And I say, hey, let's go. And you go, I'm not getting on the plane. All expense paid, let's go. This is, this is the plan. You agreed. Are you coming? I believe it'll get me there, but I'm not coming. I need you to get on the plane if we're going to go to California. I believe it. Brother, I trust in you. I'll, go ahead. You fly, I'll see you. Take care. Have a good trip. Then you need to come with me. See, now if we look at this, if we back up into chapter 12 of Genesis, we see that this was... Not the beginning of Abram's trust. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we see Abram was instructed to leave everything that was familiar and follow God to a land God would show him. Think the example that I just said. Come follow me. Genesis 12, 1 through 4 says, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives and your family's family, and go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed. So, yes, Abraham took it on faith. That faith was backed up with, yes, I'll follow you. What does Jesus say in Matthew 16, verse 24? Then Jesus said to his own disciples, If anyone wants to follow and wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. So are we seeing a pattern? Apparently faith is followed by following. It's faith and following. Faith doesn't mean, see you, Lord. Faith means, yes, I believe. Then come follow me. It's been that way from day one. 
It's been that way in the middle. It's that way now. Nothing's changed. It's not a dispensation. It's always been my people. Then come follow me. If you say you trust me, then come follow me. I'll lead you. It's always been faith with action. Because actions speak louder than just our words. And following Jesus will be a life of giving up everything that is familiar, everything that is self-centered. And Jesus even goes on to say, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And by deeds here, Jesus is not talking about a list of 613 commandments. He's talking about a surrendered life. He's talking about a soft and obedient spirit and a soft and teachable spirit like Abram or King David or Moses. Were they perfect men? The Bible clearly lists their faults. And yet the Bible says Moses was the humblest man on earth. King David was a man after God's own heart. Abraham was declared righteous by faith coupled with following after God. Not perfect men, men with surrendered hearts to follow. Some believe in a dispensation of law in the Hebrew Scriptures and a dispensation of grace in the Greek New Testament. But Abram is a prime example of grace or unmerited favor based on simple trust. God counts Abram's righteous because of his faith. He hadn't undergone a name change. At this point, he's still Abram. God hasn't changed his name. He hasn't undergone circumcision yet. There's no Mosaic law. There's no Ten Commandments. There's no 613 commandments. There's no temple. There's no Arianic priesthood. There's no sacrificial system in place. All this is yet to come. But Abram believes and he follows. So Abraham is declared righteous. Not on a list of duties to perform, but based on a heart that was soft. A heart that was pliable and willing to trust the Lord's direction and instruction. His way, if you will. Noah is another example of grace. We see in Genesis 6, 8, Scripture says, Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. It couldn't have been by works of the law that Moses was found righteous because Noah lived before the law of Moses was given. Scripture tells us Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time. And he walked in close fellowship with God. How? Grace. Grace brought on by a soft and surrendered heart, not a hard heart. Hard hearts require discipline, punishment, and law in order to steer. If you want to see the first example of grace, go all the way back to the garden. When we look in Genesis 3, when humanity sins, sometimes the grace of God gets overlooked in the mediating of the consequences of their actions. But in the garden, the consequences of rebellion in this life carried a price tag. So there were actual consequences to what they did in that life. Labor pain, work by the sweat of your brow, there were actual consequences. 
But God also laid the groundwork for eternal redemption by saying, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, I'm going to make a way. You deserve death, but I'm going to make a way. And by death, they, are, they died a physical death eventually. He's talking about death, spiritual death, eternal separation between God the Father and man and his creation. And he says, I'm going to make a way because I don't want that to happen. Grace. We deserve to be cut off permanently from his presence, but he himself will provide a way. So why did God give the law? Because that's what we're talking about. The children of Israel, and by Israel I mean the man formerly known as Jacob. Before the nation, before the state of Israel that we see now, what we're talking about is the man that was Jacob, that we sang about in our first song, that wrestled with the Lord, and after he wrestled with him, he got a name change. The children of Israel, the children of this man, formerly known as Jacob, lived in Egypt for 430 years, and they were enslaved to a pagan people and a pagan system for much of that time. And the law was given, listen, after they were brought out of slavery, as a constitution as a body of fundamental principles for the chosen people of God. It was, and this is really oversimplifying it, it was a narrative that told the story of God and the story of humanity, and it included God's likes, his dislikes, and how to stay free people and not go back into slavery. You've lived this way for so long. Now let me tell you what I like, and let me tell you how to stay free. So I guess... Once Jesus came then, uh, we don't need that anymore. But Jesus came and died, so we're under grace, not under law with all its rules and regulations, right? Well, here's the problem. Grace cannot exist apart from a law that has been broken and thereby unmerited favor is is extended. And here's what I mean. If I'm speeding, if I'm going 55 in a school zone, 35 miles an hour, if I'm speeding, if I'm breaking the law and a police officer pulls me over and he says, sir, you're breaking the law, but today's your lucky day. I'm not going to write you a ticket. Now, I used to think that's grace, except that's not grace. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness lives within grace. It's a part of grace, but it's not full enough because the law demands justice. It would be like if the police officer said, sir, you were going 55 and a 35. I'm not going to write you a ticket. I'm going to let you off today. I'm going to forgive that. By the way, I'm going to pay your fine. Let me take you to lunch. That's grace. That's the grace of God. Because you weren't just forgiven, the penalty was paid. Now you may go, well, God's God, and there's a, but law, laws by their definition. If I was to murder someone's children in here today, if somehow you could forgive me, the law of the United States would still demand my trial because law demands justice is served. That fell 
on Jesus. See, this is where our theology's been totally, it hadn't been totally wrong, but it's been grossly incomplete. We got the first part right. Jesus died and he set us free from the curse of the law, Galatians 3, 13. And the curse of the law is death for breaking it. However, the cross was not for Jesus' death. It was meant for my death. And he took my place. See, Romans 6 tells me that I was supposed to die with him. That's the other side of the story. Romans 6, 3 through 4 says, Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also live new lives. Romans 7.1 says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, you, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? So my question to you, Christ follower, is this. Are you dead to yourself, your ways, your plans, your entitlement? Are you alive in Christ or are you dead to Christ and alive to self? It's a good question because to the measure that you're alive to yourself and not crucified with Christ, you are still under the law because it's not yet been written across our hearts. And the irony is, is that as long as we are alive, we are bound beneath a yoke of law that we cannot fully keep. And by alive, I'm not talking about your physical life. I'm talking about alive to what I want to do, my way, what I choose. If you are a Christ follower, Romans makes it clear. There's no other way but to have been crucified with him. That's part of the deal. And so the beauty of this new covenant is that by the work of the Holy Spirit, the location of God's principles and instructions, his law, has changed location, just like in the video. They couldn't keep the law. Why? Was the law imperfect? Their hearts were hard. It's their hearts. It's our hearts. And so the beauty of the new covenant is that the law has changed location, not content. It's supposed to be written across our hearts, not stone. It's to be written on something pliable and soft, not rigid and hard. It confirms that in Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 33. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days. It says the Lord, I'll put my instructions deep within them and I'll write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors. Nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness. And I will never again remember their sins. This goes forward. This speaks forward of what Christ was going to do. Love me. And love others. Grace is for soft hearts that try and fail. 
It is for hearts that love God and grieve over sin. And grace is for the dead man that stopped being a fan of Jesus and become a disciple of Jesus. Have you allowed the work of the Holy Spirit to soften your heart? Are you in the process of sanctification, being made holy and set apart unto the Lord, for the Lord? Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19, he says, For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Why? Because the heart is hard. So let me end with this scripture and a visual analogy. Romans 7 says, so my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law. It doesn't say you died to the law. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And verse 7 goes on to say, well, then am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known what coveting is, that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. Now, if you look at this last slide, this is, I don't know if you can see it or not, you might have to dim the lights, but this is nuclear imaging. I use this because you can see clearly. Uh, sometimes an MRI or an x-ray doesn't show up real clear, but in nuclear imaging it shows up really clear. And so these, these are lungs, and the big red spot is lung cancer. And so you go in for this nuclear imaging or an MRI or an x-ray, and what that does is show you where the disease is, what's broken, what is not correct. Now, how do we know? Because you take a nuclear image of a healthy person that doesn't have sickness, doesn't have symptoms, and you put those side by side, one looks this way, one looks that way. Over time, through medicine, we've discovered this is what healthy looks like. This is what this disease looks like. This is an example of the law. The law of God shows me where I am broken. It shows me where I am Diseased. It shows me where there is sickness. Now, in our culture, we might go, how dare it show me what's wrong? You mean there's a wrong or a right? I think in medicine, we would say, yes, there is a healthy and there is disease. Don't you tell me what's disease. It's disease. Well, I don't see it that way. It'll end the same way every time. Because the disease doesn't care if you see it that way or doesn't. Here's the other thing. That image can only show you what's wrong. It has no power to save your life. And that's the same thing with the law. It shows you where everything in you is broken, but has no power to fix you. You still need a doctor. And guess what? You can't do it on your own. Because if you have lung cancer, you can't cut yourself open and get the cancer out. You need a skilled physician. What you have to do is you have to submit to the diagnosis. And God, 
with the hands of a doctor have to go in and they have to remove it. You have to live by grace. You're going to have to have help. It's going to have to be done on your behalf because you can't remove that yourself. God's going to do it or a doctor does it. But that image, though it shows you what's wrong, has no power to heal. And Romans 7, 14 says, So the trouble's not with the law, for it's spiritual and good. The trouble's not with that image. The trouble's with how that image makes me feel. I don't like that image. That makes me feel bad. The truth will do that. Now what? The trouble is with me, for I'm all too human and a slave to sin. Just like on the video we watched. It's my heart. That's the problem. And I have no way to fix it. God. Love God. Remember the two greatest commands summed up? Love God. Love your neighbor. His, this, is, this is the crux of it. Love God. Because he's the only person that can help me. Love neighbor. Because a lot of times community is the only thing that's going to help. Let's pray.